I would love it if you would open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be continuing our series, Strength and Weakness, God's Treasures in Jars of Clay, by looking just at the first six verses of chapter 10. Don't worry, there's enough there to keep us going for uh, quite some time. We're actually at a pretty distinct pivot if we're looking at the full uh, picture of 2 Corinthians. Uh, So Paul has finished his longer discourse on generosity, right? That is what we have been going through. Uh, Of course, having that break for Easter, but also uh, for the rest of the things around it uh, in chapters 8 and chapter 9, looking at generosity. So at first glance, to come to this point in chapter 10, it can seem like a pretty sharp transition which has actually led some people to believe this might have been a fragment. You might have heard that before, or you might hear it uh, later uh, if you look into this more. Some people believe this to be a fragment, uh, a different part of the letter that came into 2 Corinthians. But once we take a little bit of a closer look, uh, we can see I don't think that's true, because there are many things that are tying to what Paul has already said uh, and is building off of many of the things that he has gone over already. But nonetheless, this is a, a, a new movement in the letter, a new section in the letter, so to speak, right? He's hitting this transition and beginning to um, speak on a different topic, uh, directly addressing some different people. So if we look at things broadly, I won't do too much of a recap since Pastor Ben did a, a longer one last week, um, but... What Paul has talked about so far generally has been, the first part was defending his apostolic authority, defending his character, talking about those, um, and uh, basically just saying, hey man, like this is who I am. Even though these people, these uh, other apostles are saying otherwise, this is who I am. This is my heart. I am an apostle. I am Paul. Um, and then in the second kind of movement of this letter, he began to talk about the marks of a changed life from the gospel, right? We had that talk on, um, in Second in Corinthians um, 6 and 7 about the, the temple of uh, God being built in the hearts of believers, as well as this, again, this long uh, section on generosity uh, that's culminated into these last two chapters, 8 and 9. Uh, but now as we come to 10, we see a change in the tone and the posture of the letter. Instead of being conciliatory and encouraging as the tone of the first nine chapters has been, he gets a little bit sharper. His words have some bite to them um, as he begins to press back on many of these detractors, these, these opponents that have raised up many questions about his, his purpose and his conduct as an apostle, directly attacking, um, sorry, Paul is directly attacking the thoughts and the arguments that they promoted against him. And he tends to stay in this kind of tone for essentially the rest of the letter. This, this last section is largely addressing these people whom he will later mockingly call super apostles. Uh, and he's not doing this without cause, right? He's not letting his frustrations boil over uh, onto all of these people, onto all of the Corinthians, but instead he's responding in such a manner that displays his pastoral heart for each and every one of these people. Even if his tone is a little more confrontational, he has a balance. And it's this balance that a large portion of today's text covers. So with that, uh, why don't we pick it up here in chapter 10, uh, verse 1, and we'll go through verse 6. I, Paul, myself, entreat you 
by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this passage tends to cover two major topics. We have, number one, Paul's explanation in defense of his attitudes, both while he was here and away, understanding that he's talking uh, about those terms for the Corinthians being away from the Corinthians or being with the Corinthians, as well as this extended metaphor, which serves to refocus our attention on where the conflict should lie. Paul reveals how he's linking these two in the last verse, but let's not get too ahead of ourselves right there. Uh, just for a moment, uh, just for this, this time, let's focus on verses 1 and 2. So on your sermon notes page, which you have and I hope will be a help of you to let you know where I'm going, what I'm thinking, uh, should be, this should be, the first point should be entitled, Meekness and Boldness, Here and Away. And what we're looking at is another glimpse of Paul's methodology in leadership. Uh, the way that he talks about these two attitudes of meekness and boldness gives us some idea of how intentional he is when addressing people. Something that his opponents took and conflated into a negative of Paul's character in a way, painting him as weak. And that's where we get the sermon title as well, Meekness is Not Weakness. As Paul will explain that his attitudes are born out of his gospel heart for these people. So the opening words to this chapter are, I, Paul, myself. Now, this is something that Paul does quite a lot. He'll address people as like, I, Paul. He does it about 10 times throughout all of his letters where he steps out of the voice of uh, entreating his people to address them personally regarding any number of things. Uh, a lot of some of these, about three of them, are referencing when he was likely writing a part of the letter himself, like actually in his own handwriting, like in Second Thessalonians three, Colossians four, or First Corinthians sixteen, where he's saying, "I, Paul, am writing this letter with my own hand." Something to that effect. Uh, but much more than these uh, instances, this construction of "I." Paul is being used to appeal to some level of his apostolic authority or his personal character. Uh, and that's more how it's being used here in 2 Corinthians 10. Now, even while he's doing this, how he is invoking his apostolic authority and his, his character as a leader, uh, this is, he's not wielding his apostolic authority as a club, but rather he's doing it to highlight his methodology by backing it with his character, right? He's not beating people with his authority. He's entreating them on the basis of his character. This is less, I, Paul, the apostle of Jesus, and more, hey, it's Paul. You know me. Uh, you've seen me. I lived with you for over a year. You know who I am, and I'm, I'm talking to you as me, as Paul. 
Have you ever met someone who has authority and commands authority, yet does so in kindness? I know that we probably have plenty of experience with the opposite. You know, that boss who's tyrannical, doesn't like uh, people talking back or asking questions, or even putting people on blast for messing up. I had a third grade teacher like that once. His name was uh, Mr. Honeycutt. Uh, as I went through, I know, funny name, uh, I know when we went through second grade, uh, my teachers noticed that, hey, uh, this Nate guy likes to read a whole lot, and he seems to be reading a lot more books than all the other students his age. Uh, let's, let's, let's test him and see if he's, like, gifted or not. So I went and I took, like, the, the gifted program testing, peak program testing, all of these things, and they found, oh, yeah, he has very high reading comprehension. So they decided to skip me a grade. Um, I went from second grade to a fourth grade advanced class. So it wasn't even just a regular fourth grade class. It was a fourth grade advanced class. Now, they made a distinct miscalculation in all of this because I am really not good at math. And I really don't like math. All the numbers. And then they added letters to the numbers. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Stop. But... Yeah, no, not good at math. So despite this, I went through third grade in a fourth grade advanced class. Now, while I was in that class under Mr. Honeycutt, right, we, we, there was a, an assignment that we had to write uh, kind of a fictional story. And I was like, I like to read. Like, this is cool. I, I can do this. Uh, and I got really into it. However, at some point, because I was still a third grader, and no matter how much you read, you will misspell words, I got to a point where I was like, I had to write the word people. And I couldn't remember how to, I, I didn't know how to, how to spell people. And people has an O in it. And that's weird. So I did what all my teachers told me to do. And I sounded it out. And you would never know that there's an O in it. And so I sounded it out like P-pole. So I spelled it P-E-E-P-O-L-E. P-pole. That's not how you spell people. It makes sense, but it's not how you spell people. And Mr. Honeycutt, when he saw this, instead of gently correcting it, instead of, instead of uh, saying, like, listen, Nate, I, I get it. You know, you sent it out. Good job. You tried. Uh, there's an O in it, though. I know it's weird. Instead, he picked up my paper. He held it above his head, and he said, really? We're spelling people as P-pole? You're better than this. Yeah, the shame that I felt, the embarrassment. I can tell you something, though. I can tell you with certainty. I've never misspelled people since then, though. <laughs> I have never, ever forgotten the shame of being put on blast by an authority figure in that way. Meekness and boldness are tools, and tools can be misused. In 2 Corinthians, that started this passage, right? Meekness and boldness, they're both tools in Paul's toolbox. They were to be used for different effects at different times. In wielding his authority uh, and his station as a leader, Paul makes very conscious efforts to be meek and to be bold at times when one or the other is appropriate. 
This includes his voice and his tone when writing letters. And we know from earlier in this book that Paul has used even letters and visits as tools, right? We talked about the difficult visit versus this letter that was written with tears. Again, different tools on his tool belt. There was a balance in the ancient Greek world between these, these ideas, right? Uh, between uh, meekness and boldness or humility and strength. Because for many Greeks, they would consider it virtuous to be meek as long as you had the strength and the authority to back it up or produce punishment or correction uh, when confronting your people. And it's clear that criticism of, criticism of Paul had painted him in a state of weakness, which meant that many of these people began to view him as a fraud. He said, you are not strong at all. You are just meek. They saw him as the humble person that he was. He was scarred, not a great speaker. He, he worked for a living. Uh, he was poor even. He traveled a lot. He, he didn't have uh, possessions and things like this. They saw the meekness but they didn't see the strength or the boldness in the classic way that they would expect leaders to be strong and bold with money and influence and charisma. But that couldn't be further from the truth because while Paul didn't look right to them and didn't match these expectations, this Paul was the same Paul that the Corinthians knew for over a year. And Paul was having to tell them that their ideas of meekness are backwards, that meekness is not born out of weakness. Meekness is not weakness. But out of the humility to be Christ-like and to be intentional in the way that he approaches people. That's where the money was. That's how Paul proved he was a leader. Because he used his tools and he used them well and intentionally. Sure, he was meek with them while he was with them. That's because he didn't want to have to be bold. I beg of you, he says, when I'm present, please don't make me be bold. Please don't make me do that. That's kind of like calling your child's middle name or counting down when they aren't doing what they're supposed to. I learned two things as a kid. Number one, you don't want to know what happens after one. And number two, if I ever heard Nathan Earl Ferris, that means my chance for being received in meekness was over. Don't make me have to be bold. The biblical image of meekness tells a very different story than what our world or even this Greek world would have known meekness about. There are many passages that talk about humility, meekness towards others, but the main one that I want to highlight alongside our passage this morning is how meekness is discussed in the book of James. Now, James is famous for talking at length about enduring trials and, of course, how faith without the evidence of it in works, to back it up, is just dead. But James is putting meekness at the beginning and then even at the middle of his letter. So here's James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, which says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness 
in rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Right here, first chapter of James, verses 19 through 21. Be quick to hear, but slow to speak, slow to anger. Receive the word with meekness, right? Wisdom and eloquence have a tendency to puff people up, to make them influential. But the wisdom from God was to be received with this meekness that Paul was being mocked for. It's the farthest thing from a weakness because James goes on to say in chapter three of of James, this is uh, verse 13 through 15, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That is a very stark difference. Meekness versus boldness, right? These detractors of Paul that he mockingly calls super apostles, they know scripture. Uh, We'll read this later. They know many other things. I'll leave those for there. But they have not received their wisdom in meekness. But they have done so in pride. With selfish ambition. Wanting to be rich, eloquent, well-known. That is a massively, massively different attitude than Paul who says in Romans 9 that he wished that he would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the Jewish people knowing him. What a stark difference. Meekness and humility. They're all over the Bible. They're elevated by the Bible and for good reason. Because that is how God chose to save the world. By coming in meekness. Oh, God knows how to be bold. Don't get me wrong. He flooded the world. He destroyed cities with fire and brimstone. If we read Revelation, we see the full scope of God's boldness that will come. But that was not his first foot forward. In choosing to deal with the world, as much as we can look at the Old Testament, we can look at the past and see boldness, We also see the ultimate display of meekness in Jesus Christ. How humbly he came. A baby. A squishy little baby. And then one that grew into a man. Just a man, but also not just a man. This is where Paul understands this meekness first thing. He understands it from Jesus. And just as he, in pursuit of Christ, came with meekness first, so should we be a people who are quick to humility, quick to listen, quick to meekness, slow to anger, slow to boldness. Whether it was in person or away, Paul even chose how to deliver his 
boldness, avid letter writer, and he saw all of these letters, all of these communications as an opportunity for growth. And now even as we read his letters, we can see where he was meek and where he was bold. Meekness and boldness here and away. It's not a weakness. It's a tool. Now, Paul gets to the reasons that there is such a big divide in the thinking between him and his opponents, right? These people who are painting him as weak are judging him based on the assumption that we're all looking for worldly value and influence. As he says, those who suspect us of walking in the flesh. But it's not necessarily a fleshly opponent that Paul is contesting here, but rather a spiritual one. Paul is beginning to unwind the realities of spiritual warfare. And that's what he talks about when he shifts in verse 3. Now, uh, chapter 10, verses uh, 1-2, right? Those are two sentences. 3 through 6, well, our English will break it up into multiple sentences. In the Greek, it's one sentence. So as we read this again, just imagine no stops, no breaths, no periods, all one thought. Why don't you read with me again, uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 6 in 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So having established his authority once again, Paul delivers this very scathing warning to his detractors and his opponents. You think... I'm walking in the world, but you've been fooled. Though we walk in the world, we are no longer citizens of the world. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So the enemies that we should be worried about are the enemies of that kingdom, not the ones that are here on earth. They're spiritual enemies. This is spiritual Warfare. The things we should care the most about should be of eternal consequences. How we look, how we dress, how we act, how successful we are, how eloquent we are, how much better we are than other people, whatever it is, they don't mean anything in the grand scope of eternity. We can't analyze how we're doing based on how good we look on earth. We are waging a war. And it's not a war that we can win with anything of value down here. It's not a war that we can win with the machine of American industrialism. We can't throw however many planes at the problem until it's a crater. We can't win with strength or boldness as we would understand it here. That's what Paul is doing, right? He's outlining how do we fight this battle. And so he does so by entering into this rightly uh, a very heavy military metaphor to describe spiritual warfare. We're waging war. We're having weapons that destroy strongholds. We're taking captives and standing ready to put down 
rebels. We tend to think of rebels as, as sympathetic these days. We like the plucky rebel alliance in Star Wars that stands up to the evil galactic empire. They're the good guys. In school, we're often taught about the American Revolution in almost rose-tinted lenses, right? We, we are a nation that was born intrinsically from rebellion. We see them as heroes of democracy and freedom, so we can think, oh, rebels, those are the good guys. They're fighting against tyranny, or they're fighting against evil. But if we're talking about heaven, if we're talking about the author of life, we're talking about sin, Rebelling against the author of life is not something to be commended or celebrated, but it's met with punishment. So what's the nature of the battlefield? Do you see it? As we look at the many things that Paul is talking about in this metaphor, we see that they take root in the mind. And these are largely offensive metaphors in nature. Now, while he doesn't explain what the weapons are in this verse, he does give us a clear outline of the targets, right? The goal, the object, is not to destroy people. But the arguments and the lofty thinking that hold them captive. Those are the strongholds being destroyed. And we're taking, as captives, thoughts. Now, the only other time that Paul talks about the equipment for spiritual warfare is this rather famous passage, right? Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, the armor of God. I know many of us know this. I will just list them off really quickly. Uh, The belt of truth, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the readiness of the gospel of peace on your feet or the shoes of peace, Uh, the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, but the one offensive option, the one weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That is how these strongholds of thought and argument are destroyed by the word of God. The battlefield is in the mind. And it's one that is radically changed by the gospel contained within the word of God. Now, if we think back to our discussion on James, we see clearly how these attitudes of meekness relate to spiritual warfare. As we receive with the wisdom of the word in meekness and humility and walk in the meekness of wisdom, the foolishness of the flesh is defeated by that which is from above, that which was delivered to us in meekness. Now, there's a lot of practical things we can talk about uh, spiritual warfare, and it's a very broad and complex topic. So there is much, much more to say than what I will say here. But I wanted to dwell just a moment longer what it means to take every thought captive for Christ. Because thoughts can be difficult to measure and even more difficult to change or to put aside. If I were to say, don't think about purple hippos, What are you thinking about? Purple hippos, right? I think that's why Paul phrased it this way, taking them captive, because we know what the bad thoughts are. Grumbling, complaining, thinking nasty things about people or things. A big one for me is I worked retail back in college, and there were so many times that, oh, I did not want to let what was in my mind out. 
Oh, buddy, what I'd say to you if I weren't on the clock. But we're not going to wrangle those thoughts in by dwelling on them, by saying, don't think about that. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. You can't do it. They'll just come back with a vengeance. I had a pretty deep, depressive episode the year after high school. And one of the struggles that that came through that were this phenomenon that's called intrusive thoughts. Now, an intrusive thought is often an unwanted thought or impulse that seems to enter your mind of its own accord. Uh, more often than not, it's, it's not random things like, oh, I want pizza right now, or I should clean the bathroom, or I should go to the store. It's, they're not normal thoughts. They were often violent in nature. In my case, self-destructive. Unbidden. In my case, they always came at night because, you know, when you're lying there just before you fall asleep and you have nothing to do but think, I'd always think, I hope those don't come back tonight. And without fail, every time I thought, I hope those don't come back tonight, they'd be back. Now, as I improve right, mentally, I, I, I got some help. I, I talked to um, some spiritual leaders, people who led me back to the Gospels, some other people who helped me with counseling and, and things like that. Um, they began to diminish, yes, but they didn't really go away. I just knew what they were now. And I knew that they were unbidden, but they were still there. They didn't really go away until I immersed myself completely in something else. See, for me, I went to a Bible school. I went to Ecola. It's this little two-year Bible school at the north end of Cannon Beach um, where I drank out of a fire hose of biblical studies for about two years. Now, over that time, the intrusive thoughts faded and went away. Now, that's not to say, what I, I don't want you to hear, oh, that's the cure for intrusive thoughts. We should all just go to Bible school. It, you, it worked for me. It may not work for everyone else. They can be symptoms of other things that may need therapy or counseling. So, so please, if you are experiencing that as well, seek out help. Um, and don't come away with the moral of, I have these, well, just because I need to read my Bible more. That's a good thing, but it, it may not fix that problem. I just wanted to, to preface that. But I do want you to come away with a desire to take our thoughts captive for Christ, right? To have Jesus arrest our minds and be at the forefront of them so that everything that comes in and through gets picked apart by the knowledge of the gospel within them for them to act as a filter, for truly, we cannot go through this life fixated on what we should not do and should not think, but rather by going forward towards something, Amen. by going towards Jesus. This is the heart of what Paul is saying in verse 6. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul's desire is not to come with a sword or with a cudgel, with a hammer. That's why he's coming to them in meekness, right? Begging them, don't make me be bold. No, Paul's desire to work is to work with the Corinthians and to only punish the disobedience when the obedience is complete, to correct them when they are actually working towards the goal, when they are actually going in the right 
direction. Boldness, correction, is for the brother who is working towards the common goal and needs that boldness. That one to say, hey man, I know you're not doing well because I know we're going towards the same thing. Meekness is for the outsider who doesn't know who Jesus is and is going in a completely different direction. Now, there are times, of course, for boldness with unbelievers and meekness with believers. Don't get me wrong. But what should we be putting forward first? Can we reach people for the gospel by being taskmasters? Can we encourage people towards Christ by chasing them? There's a movie out there that I dearly love, even though it's got a ton of swearing in it. It's called Whiplash. It's a movie about a jazz drummer. He wants to be the very best jazz drummer that ever has been, right? He, he's working hard. He drums until his hands bleed and everything. It's, it's very... Uh, stark movie sometimes and he's working for this awful overbearing horrible director this guy belittles him he calls him worthless he cusses him out he throws a chair at his head uh because he's like you're not good enough you're not good enough why are you here you're not good enough berating him constantly it gets to the point where this student on his way to a concert this drummer gets into a huge car wreck that nearly ends his life in career. And then at the end of this movie, there's this huge climax scene where the drummer, he's just playing his heart out. He's playing with his director one last time. And it's only when he gets over his fear of that director and says, I can play this music, that everything clicks. We must not fear the failure, but love the victor. We must set our eyes on Jesus. So I want to encourage you with, with some things that we talked about today, because we can learn a lot from Paul's example of leadership in, in scripture, right? It's putting meekness and humility first and the value that they have in scripture, as well as how they're being used, right? Paul was often bold in letters, when he had time and distance to think. Because it can often be too easy to be hasty to boldness when your emotions are getting the best of you and there's someone right in front of you that you just want to destroy. But let's not be hasty to boldness. Let us not be quick to anger, right? Sometimes taking a moment to gather our thoughts is vital. Even if it is much easier to respond in boldness and directly right then there, there may be times when you need to step away. You need to give it some time to breathe. Or maybe you even need to find a different vehicle for this. Write a letter. People don't write letters enough anymore. We have these things. These are great. A phone call or a text is fine. But letters are cool. That's not biblical. That's just my opinion. Um, if we can help it, let us be slow to anger. Uh, there are times when quick action is needed, but if we can help it, let us be slow to anger. When soldiers are marching for battle, right, we're talking about spiritual warfare in the battlefield of the mind. They frequently check their weapons and keep watch for enemy activity. 
so should we when we enter the battlefield of thought. We should be checking what we have and what we're getting. Continuously evaluating, is this right? Does this align with the values that are in the gospel? Whether it be what we're reading, what we're hearing in the news, what we're hearing from the world, anything. School, news, media, whatever thought is coming through. Is it valuable? Does it match the values that are in the gospel? Is it an enemy thought that needs to be destroyed? An argument that doesn't match up? Or is it something to be taken captive for Jesus? And finally, uh, we must be open to correction. We're very attached to the way that we do things, right? And when we turn and we start to do things God's way, we really shouldn't expect to get it all right on the first time around. Uh, Learning these things and growing in the Lord is a lifelong process that we should be set on doing. We should be set on completing that obedience by walking with Christ each day. Or if you can't walk, then crawl. Wherever you are in that, go towards your Savior. I'd like to pray for us as we go, but I just want to give you one last exhortation that a lot of this can be scary if we think about spiritual warfare, to think there are forces out there directly against us, but we have a victor. We, he has already won. Won't you pray with me? Dear Lord, we just thank you for uh, another Sunday, Lord, another opportunity to open your word, to worship together, to fellowship to pray all as a community. Uh, we, we thank you for such a unique opportunity, such an amazing uh, time. Lord, we thank you for uh, all of the blessings that you are doing uh, in Sunset Bible Church. Lord, these, these things that are happening, um, community, life together, we value it so highly. Lord, I pray that as we would go out from here, uh, that we would uh, work to understand what is being put towards us, what is being told to us and to evaluate it against what you have, Lord, what you have for us. Lord, I pray that we would just love your word, Lord, more and more each day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.